0: Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 if you would this morning. This is where we're going to be as we pick it up from where I left off last time we were in Romans 1. And let me pray while you're finding that. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to catch us off guard this hour. Our Father, we grow complacent and overly familiar with holy things, even your word leaving behind the awe and the reverence, do your name. We pray, our Father, this morning that you'd surprise us with some experience of beauty or insight so that for at least a moment we might be startled into realizing that you are here with us in all of your glory, barely hidden beneath, beyond and within this life that we breathe. Hide great hopes in our souls today and stir mighty visions in our mind, that our worship might give rise to more committed service to you. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask it and pray, amen. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 23 this morning. I'm going to begin by saying, sometimes the evidence doesn't always yield the right verdict, does it? I mean, no matter how convincing or convicting, no matter how blatant or compelling, no matter how incontrovertible, no matter how cut and dry the facts may be in a case, there is always that remote possibility that somehow the logical, reasonable, and oftentimes the unavoidable conclusion will not be drawn. I remember vividly the first time I encountered that disturbing reality. Rodney King, you remember that name? Rodney King was caught by the Los Angeles police after a high-speed chase on March 3rd in 1991. The officers pulled him out of the car and they beat him brutally, while amateur cameraman George Holliday caught it all on videotape. It's decades old news now, but at the time after viewing that videotape of the brutal beating he received, I was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, that no jury in the land would fail to convict those LA police officers. And shock of all shocks, they got off. Inflaming citizens and sparking the violent 1992 Los Angeles riots. Now, eventually, the United States Department of Justice filed federal civil rights charges against those four officers, and in August of 92, Two of them were found guilty while the other two were acquitted. So two decades, though, after the riots, Rodney King actually told CNN that he had forgiven those officers for what they had done. Now, I don't know about you, but something inside of me broke when that incident first happened. Somehow deep inside of me, I knew that I was witnessing the total depravity of man in a form I had not seen before. I wondered how anyone could see the facts so blatantly pictured before their eyes and walk away unconvinced. Maybe it was an overfamiliarity with that video. Maybe people got numb to it and began to question what they were actually seeing. Maybe it was the deception of an overanalysis of the facts. I don't know, but I do know that something snapped inside of my view of humanity and our ability to see the truth. Obviously, I was not alone because the aftermath of that first verdict That willful disregard of the facts touched off one of the worst displays of hatred and unabashed violence that we've witnessed in decades. During the course of which, an encore performance occurred. You probably remember. Only this time, the names were changed and the colors reversed. Enter Reginald Denny. Another senseless beating, another condemning video another verdict which willfully ignored the obvious, Henry Watson, who was only convicted of a minor offense and served less than six months for that, said that he has no regrets for his actions. The facts were there, not just in black and white, but in living color. Fast forward now to a more recent example, just a year ago. Be a year ago next week. George Floyd, who was killed by a Minneapolis police officer who knelt on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds while four other officers watched and held back the crowds. The aftermath of national and international violence is still being felt from that event. Thankfully, the officer was tried and convicted, but all of this makes me stop and realize some incredibly convicting and condemning things about all of us. First, we have a knack of suppressing the truth. Mankind ignores the facts. We exchange truth for lies, and you've done it, and I've done it, and some of you are doing it even right now. We don't like what we see, so we close our eyes and our ears to it. We'd rather not deal with what we hear, so we block our ears to it. That leads to something else. We not only suppress the truth, but we sell out. What do I mean by that? We become indifferent to sin. If we ignore it long enough, we figure, oh, it's just going to go away. The truth is, is that sin does not go away. Our conscience simply gives way. And the truth of the matter is, that we can't get away with it. God won't let us get away with it. We can suppress the truth if we want to. We can ignore the sin, but we can't dodge God. He's there, and he is not blind, and he is not silent either. So in the end, we suffer the consequences. The fact of the matter is that God never messes up the verdict, does he? Never. There won't be any shockers in the final judgment. There's not going to be any escape, no excuses, no appeals on the decision, no exceptions to the rules. The undeniable truth is simply this is that our indifference to sin brings the indictment of God. That's what Romans 1, 18 to 23 is telling us today. This is one of the most concentrated texts in the New Testament, in my opinion. It's one of those chocolate mousse type texts. It's rich, it's full, it's incredibly filling No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to get through it all. We're just going to take a small taste, a small bite of it today. Let me read to you. You can follow along. Romans 1, 18 to 23. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, Paul makes no apologies here about his topic, no disclaimers. He doesn't worry about how his words are going to affect people's delicate balance of self esteem. He jumps right in and he tackles the problem sin. Sin is the problem. Amen? He knows that before a person will accept the gospel of salvation, he has to realize that he actually needs it. And so, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul leaves no stone unturned as he systematically presents us with the fact that every single one of us is in the deep weeds, we're in deep trouble. As we approach this text, I want you to picture yourself in a courtroom. As a prosecutor, Paul presents an open and shut case against every man, every woman, every child in existence. Why? Because he knows that he has to cut through our indifference. People need to know that they're lost before they can be saved. Perhaps no one has portrayed how oblivious most people are to the seriousness of their condition as well as Tom Wilson did in an old, old Ziggy comic strip. You remember Ziggy, the comic strip? Uh, I wasn't able to get it on the screen for you. I tried, but it wasn't working. But uh, Ziggy's sitting on top of a rooftop and the floodwaters has risen up to almost where he's sitting now. The only thing showing is the very peak of the roof and the chimney. And he hears this coming out of a radio that he has sitting on the roof with him. It says, had this been an actual emergency, (laughs) now some of you are old enough to remember when those things came across the television, right, and the radio. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Had this been an actual emergency, right, that's how people are about sin. They don't realize that they're in the middle of a real emergency and they're almost up to their neck in the problem. If you're one of those people, you need to realize that this is not only a test of the spiritual emergency broadcast system, this is the real thing. For the next 60 verses or so, the Apostle Paul will not be conducting a test, but he's going to be identifying the truth about an emergency situation that every single one of us is involved in, everyone in the world is involved in. It's sin. And there are a few things that we ought to realize about the situation in the text we're looking at today. And the first one is, is that there's no escape from it. There's no escape. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is not a popular subject these days to preach on. Never is, really, Although back in the days of uh, the great revivals, they preached hard about sin, right? Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that just totally transformed people. But today it's downplayed. In fact, it's actually suppressed. I read that years ago, An article appearing in the Times of London reported that 14 church study groups in Woodford looked at the Old Testament Psalms and concluded that 84 of them were not fit for Christians to sing. Their reasoning was that the wrath and vengeance reflected in those Psalms were not compatible with the Christian gospel of love and grace. Little Scottish boy refused to eat his prunes one night. So his mother sent him off to bed saying, God's angry at you. And soon after the boy went to his room, a violent storm broke out outside. Thunderstorm and amidst flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, the mother looked into the boy's room, worried that he would be terrified by this storm. And when she opened the door, she found him looking out the window, muttering these words. My oh my, such a fuss about A few prunes. (laughs) Listen, my friends, God's not fussing about a few prunes. He's fuming about continual perversion. That's what sin is. It's a perversion of all that's right. And contrary to popular belief, we're not getting away with it, not for long. Mark it well, God will not overlook sin. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament consistently present God's righteous wrath and anger at sin as part of his character. The prophet Habakkuk declared, your eyes, Lord, are too pure to look at evil and you cannot look at harm favorably. That's Habakkuk 1, verse 13. And while the prophet Nahum Set the record straight in Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3. He said, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You see, God's wrath is not like human anger, which is temperamental and rises out of a desire for personal revenge. Due to sin, that's corrupt anger. God's wrath arises out of His holiness and His purity and His righteousness. It's the just response to the corruption of sin. It was revealed from heaven in the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve's sin as God cursed mankind with physical and spiritual death. You remember that. It was revealed in the flood when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent in the thought of his heart was only evil continually, as it says in Genesis 6, 5. It was revealed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah where not even 10 righteous people could be found in the city. If you read Genesis 18, you'll see that. It was revealed at Golgotha. When God's wrath against our sin, all sin, was poured out intensely upon his only son who never committed a single one. Now to say that God's wrath against sin is not compatible with the gospel of God's love totally denies the cross. The two, God's love and God's wrath on sin, were happening simultaneously on the cross while Christ gave up his life. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven even now. That's what the original language indicates in verse 18. For the wrath of God is continually being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's how you could read it. So how can we deny it? Look around. The conscience of of the nation is all but gone, right? Children kill each other. Adults hate each other families are completely splintered and the whole world is ripping apart at the seams, how much more has to happen before we realize that God's not pleased? Oh my, such a fuss over a few prunes. That's the world's attitude. Do you think that the people of Noah's time said, oh, this is not the judgment of God, it's just strange weather? It's climate change. It's it's the result of climate change and global warming. You think they were saying that? Do you think that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah said, oh, it's just a little hailstorm, it'll pass? Maybe they did. But if they did, it was because their hearts were so hardened by sin that they could not see the writing on the wall. My brothers and sisters, we don't want to be those kinds of people. Do we see the writing on the wall? God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against three things here in this text, according to Paul. Number one, a direct disregard of man toward God, ungodliness. Number two, the distinct indifference of man toward each other, unrighteousness. And then three, the defiant drowning of truth, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And if you think God's wrath is bad, now wait. Wait want a picture just take some time this week and read Revelation chapters 4 through 19 I will give you a little hint in Matthew 24 we've been studying this in our Monday night small group Matthew chapter 24 verses 21 and 22 for then Jesus says there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Skip down to verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's a judgment passage. And is it bad to just... uh, Make merry and feast with each other and enjoy each other's company and marry and give in marriage. And all. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is they were so consumed with all of that stuff, they completely were not ready when Christ came. Completely unprepared. If you do a study of Matthew 24 and 25, the whole thrust of that whole Olivet discourse is about being prepared. It's because God's wrath is real and our sin is the reason. But you know what? Most of us will tend to apply all of this to unbelievers out there, outside these walls, or maybe some that are in here. But you know, we can't point the finger at someone else all the time. If we understand anything about God's hatred of sin, then we ought to understand that it applies to our own state of being as well. Because we sin too. And God doesn't like it. Don't ever forget that. Every person born on the face of the earth except Jesus Christ deserves to be under God's wrath because all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. Is that right? And when it comes to the sin situation, in fact, Paul's going to say that later on, uh, when it comes to the sin situation, there's no escape from the truth that we deserve God's wrath. Someone might use the old excuse that my kids used to pull out every time they got in trouble. Well, I didn't know Guess what? You knew. And you know. So there's no excuse. That's the second thing that Paul brings out here. No excuse. Verse 19, beginning in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Just as there's no escape from God's justice, there's no excuse for man's resistance. No one can truthfully say to God, I didn't know. You can't. God has revealed himself to man in countless ways, and the principle is very clear. When a person responds to the light that he's been given, he'll receive more light. You get that? God has seen to it that everyone has some knowledge of God and and knowledge of sin to which he is held accountable. How? The first way is through creation. So Paul points out, through creation, we know that there is a God. Through conscience, that's the second way, we know that there is a right and a wrong thing to do, that behavior falls into those categories. Now, if people respond positively to those two things, God's going to respond with more specific revelation about himself. That's the pattern. That's what, Paul, that's what the Bible shows us. Psalm 145 verse 18 says this, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Psalm 9 verse 10, and those who know your name will put their trust in you for you, Lord, have not abandoned those who seek you. God will not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye if someone is seeking him. If you seek me with all of your heart, Jeremiah said in 29:13. Jeremiah 29:13. If you seek, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. See, God has made Himself evident to all people, both externally and internally. So when people ask the question, "What about the native who has never heard about God? Will God judge them?" The answer is clear, right here. Everyone who has ever lived has had some sort of revelation of God, some knowledge. They are responsible to respond properly to that revelation, no matter how subtle, no matter how sublime. The problem is that most people don't respond. They suppress the truth as it says here. They suppress the truth that they have received about God and they rebel against it. Suppressing the truth automatically implies knowledge of the truth, doesn't it? And Paul says that we suppress it in unrighteousness. That's what it says. Rolf Zetterson once wrote in an article, a good friend in North Carolina bought a new car with a voice warning system And at first, Edwin was amused to hear the soft female voice gently remind him that his seatbelt wasn't fastened. Edwin affectionately used to call this voice the little woman. And soon, he discovered that this little woman was programmed to warn him about his gasoline. Your fuel level is low, she said one time in her sweet voice. And Edwin nodded his head and thanked her. He figured he still had enough gas to go another 50 miles, so he just kept on driving. But a few minutes later, her voice interrupted again with the same exact warning. And so it went over and over and over again. Although he knew it was the same recording, Edwin thought her voice sounded a little harsher every single time she said it. Finally, he stopped his car and he crawled under the dashboard and he after a quick search he found the appropriate wires and he gave them a good yank. <laughs> so much for the little woman. He was still smiling to himself a few miles later when his car began to sputter and cough. He ran out of gas, obviously. Somewhere inside the dashboard, Edwin was absolutely sure he could hear that little woman (laughs) laughing. Well, people like Edwin learned before long that the little voice inside, although ignored or even disconnected, suppressed, often tells them exactly what they need to know. Psalm 14, verses 1 and 2 says this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. No one can claim ignorance of God. Everyone has had some witness of God. Here's the oxymoron, though, contained in verse 20. Although his full attributes are invisible, through creation, Paul says, they're clearly seen. It's oxymoron, right? But it's, a, it's God's grace that his full attributes are invisible because we'd self-destruct if God's full power and glory were ever unveiled in its entirety to us, wouldn't we? But through creation, God has left us a witness. Case in point, when she was very young, Helen Keller was ravaged by a disease that left her without sight, speech, or hearing. And through the unending efforts of Ann Sullivan, Helen finally learned to communicate through touch, and eventually she even learned how to talk. But when they could finally communicate effectively, Miss Sullivan introduced her to one of the greatest preachers around, Reverend Phillips Brooks, who actually penned the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He told her about God and what God had done for us in Jesus Christ and Helen's response in a letter to Brooks said that she had always known about God even before she had any words. Even before she could call God anything, she knew God was there. She sensed his presence in her utter darkness and isolation and she knew she was not alone She just didn't know his name. Now she had a name. Paul says, there's no excuse. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God has made himself clearly visible to everyone. How? Again, through creation. Uh, One of my favorite psalms really points that out well. In Psalm 19, Just follow along with me while I read quickly verses 1 to 6. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Well, there you go. You can stop right there, right? And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Acts chapter 14 in the New Testament kind of reiterates the same kind of thing. Acts 14 and verse 16 Paul's saying in in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without a witness, it says, in that he did good and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Again, God gives us a witness. The goodness of life, The glory of creation, all testify that there is a creator God who exists and that we are morally accountable to him. All we have to do is open our eyes and we see God is there. Napoleon, on a warship in the Mediterranean on a starlit night, passed a group of his officers who were mocking the idea of a God and he stopped right there and sweeping his hand toward the stars in the heavens, said, Gentlemen, you must get rid of these first. Creation is God's first missionary. The heavens declare the glory of God. We could list innumerable evidences of the creation that insist upon God's existence. The human heart, for example, is about the size of an owner's of its owner's fist. An adult heart weighs in, in at least one pound, less than a pound actually, yet can do the work in 12 hours to lift 65 tons an inch off the ground. A water molecule it's composed of only three atoms, but if all the molecules in one drop of water were the size of a grain of sand, they would make a road one foot thick and half a mile wide that would stretch from Los Angeles to New York. More amazing is the fact that an atom is largely made up of space. Its actual matter takes up only one trillionth of its volume. All of this screams, I'm up here, right? I love the B.C. comic strip. Oh, God, if you're up there, give me a sign. (laughs) The earth quakes and here comes the sign. (laughs) I'm up here. What more do we need? The heavens declare the Lord the glory of God. Uh, From the cycle of seasons to the birth of a child, from the instinctive migration of birds to the delicate intricacies of the microscopic world, from the delicate balance of the earth's rotation to the complex working of the human anatomy, creation testifies that there must be a supreme power and divine being and design which ordered all of these things and sustains it. God says, I'm up here. There's no other reasonable explanation. Now, to explain the present state of the ordered universe as coming from a random explosion somewhere in space is as ludicrous as trying to convince somebody that the complete library of Congress came out of a power surge in somebody's computer. Besides, who caused the explosion? I had a self-proclaimed atheist in my office one day, right up there, when that was my office. I remember this conversation As I proceeded with this kind of reasoning, he cut off the conversation. He didn't want to talk about it anymore. He had no answers. He didn't even have any any interest, to tell you the truth, after that. The fact was, he did not want to admit that secretly he knew there was an eternal power and divine nature that was above him. I realized right then and there the truth of the statement. That an atheist does not find God for the same reason a thief does not find a policeman because he's not looking for him. There's no excuse, Paul says. God gives all people light and when they respond to it with the earnest desire to know more of him, he gives them more light. Think, for those of you that know your Bibles, think of Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch riding along the road. He's reading in Isaiah. He's trying to figure out what it all means. And all of a sudden, Philip shows up out of nowhere. But we know how Philip showed up. God teleported him there, (laughs) right? (laughs) Transported him there. And then Philip got into that carriage and he explained to that Ethiopian eunuch what that passage of scripture meant, pointed him to Jesus. Next thing you know, they're in the water getting baptized. Tell me that God does not respond if you're interested in having more light, that God doesn't make a way for you to get more light. God's desire is that no one should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The sad fact is is that most people continually reject what light they have, and therefore they condemn themselves. It's not God. The people of Jesus, they rejected the light of the world right to his face. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 makes it very clear to us, beginning in verse 17, this is just after, you know, the famous verse, the well-known verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But follow that up, follow that up with verse 17. For God did not son- send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested As having been wrought in God. Most skeptics would do well to stop asking about the native on the remote island and how they receive light and start worrying about why they haven't accepted it themselves. What kind of light are you dismissing? You know, every time you come to this church, every time you open your Bible, Every time you talk to a Christian about God, every time you see something of God in the world, you're being exposed to the light of God's truth. What are you doing with it? Are you receiving it and making the necessary changes in your life? Or are you just rejecting it out of hand? Paul says that there will be no acceptable explanations before God as to why people don't receive him. God's condemnation is just, Paul says, there's no escape. He hates all sin and men have sinned and refuse to admit it. There's no excuse. God has revealed himself to us, but people have rejected him. And the final blow here in verses 21 to 23 is that there's no exchange, no exchange. Romans 1 verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, God has offered himself, but men have replaced him. Men and women have replaced him. But you know what? God's not gonna share his preeminence with anything or anyone else, is he? When people continue in sin and constantly reject all the evidence that God is their creator and worthy of their worship, eventually they regress to the point of complete reversal. What do I mean by that? So what Paul says. They create their own gods that do not condemn or convict them. Gods that they can control, which actually says that they are the God. Note the natural regression here. Even though people know that God exists... They refuse to honor him as supreme. They refuse to give him the worship he deserves, nor do they acknowledge him gratefully for all that he gives. This is convicting even to us, isn't it? How often do you stop and acknowledge God in an honorable, worshipful way in your everyday existence? Are you grateful for everything that he gives you? How many of his blessings slip by unnoticed or unaccounted for in terms of worship? So many. How often do we abuse his gifts and take them for granted? That's a big one, right? Honor means to invest with dignity. That's what the word means. To magnify, to extol, to invest with excellence, the chief end of man, the Shorter Confession of Westminster Confession says, the Shorter Catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man was created to glorify God, to honor Him. Instead, too often we stuff Him under the table and honor ourselves. We're conceited. We are. We're obsessed with ourselves. We get caught up with the dealings of the world so we don't have to face the demands of God, don't we? We become enamored with our own wisdom and we fail to realize that God is the one who has given us that wisdom, if we have any at all. The result of that, says Paul, is that man becomes futile in his inward reasoning. His quest for wisdom degenerates into worthlessness, worthless pursuits. And that leads to further regression and his heart becomes devoid of light altogether. Professing to be wise, Paul says, men and women become fools. And the word is literally the word moronic. It's where we get our term moron from. Continuing to assert their wisdom, these people become moronic. Watch a few talk shows and you'll see this biblical truth in action. And then Paul says they become obscured in moral darkness. At that point, mankind begins to pursue godless philosophies which ultimately lead to moral perversion and spiritual deception which we will see when we get to the next section here which is not going to be a very popular message, I will tell you right now. (laughs) That's not next week though. I'm going to do something else next week in honor of Pentecost. But the result is the concoction of all kinds of man-made religions which lead them further and further and further away from God and eventually into a black hole of rank idolatry. Because every man and woman was created with a capacity to worship and harbors deep-seated longing for God. Because of that, they, they become empty and dissatisfied when they attempt to fill that God-shaped void in their hearts with anything else. And so they they try all kinds of things. And eventually people exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images of corruptible creation, that's what Paul says. Man, woman, and animals. And it still goes on today. It happened in Israel. It happens in America. America. God's not pleased with that. Why? Because of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to what he says to his people in Israel, which has application to us. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, begs the question, what kind of cisterns are you hewing out? What kind of cisterns am I hewing out? Listen, folks, you're gonna bow down to something. If it's not the true God, it's going to be a false one, but you're going to bow down to something. Sound like Bob Dylan, right? You're going to serve somebody. But that's the way God created us. We're going to fill that God-shaped void with something. God will not tolerate the exchange. No way. God's absolute absolute hatred of idolatry is absolutely unmistakable. Uh, We were just in Exodus on Mother's Day. But in Exodus 20, in the first, you know, commandments, verses three to five, you shall have no other gods before me. Right out of the shoe, right? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth, beneath or in the water and under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness in thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the deal the fallout of that kind of idolatry is generational, it goes on. Because people follow in their parents' footsteps and it just gets worse and worse. Isaiah 42 8 is very instructive. It ought to be posted on our mirror, you know, somewhere when we're looking at ourselves because it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Tragic result? is that God eventually gives men up to their own desires. Bad news. That's bad news. But understanding the bad news is what helps us to realize the need of good news. Amen? The news that Jesus Christ came to break that downhill slide. He's the only lawyer that can get us off. God's wrath has been poured out upon him. God's indictment is sure when people are indifferent to sin. So if you have not placed your trust, your total worship, your acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's another wrath coming. You're not going to survive it. Jesus is your only hope. Let me wrap this up. Do you see yourself on any part of this downhill slide at all? I, I don't know if you do or not. I don't know what your spiritual status is. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening out there who will see this video, and they may not know Jesus Christ. I pray that before the end of this day that they would, or the end of that video that they would, Have you foolishly ignored God's wrath against sin? Because you have no escape except to respond to him. Have you willing and willfully rejected the evidence that God has presented to you and ignored his attempts to reach you? Because you have no excuse that will stand up in court in the end. Have you totally replaced the true God with some other object of your worship and devotion? He will not tolerate the exchange. And there are no exceptions. Jesus is your only alternative. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you've made it very plain. You've made it very clear. We have no excuses. We stand before you humbled by this word. And I pray that there's not a person that doesn't go out of this place seriously considering where they stand with you. So I ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would have free reign to do its work in every single heart and soul, including my own. For I ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen.